Hello. I am a robot. You are listening to an echo of glory. A 200% podcast. Hello everybody, and welcome to the 13th episode of An Echo of Glory, a 200% podcast. My name is Ian King, and over the course of this series I'll be telling you the history of football in England and Wales, tracing the story of the game here from the mob game of the Middle Ages through to the modern day. By the summer of 1982, English football was in two contradictory looking positions. On the one hand, three English clubs had won the last six consecutive European Cups. But hooliganism and falling attendances were blighting the game at home, with hooliganism now having attached itself to the national team as well. As the economy took a downturn, football clubs started to suffer, and insolvency was in the air for those who couldn't balance their books. In an increasingly panic-stricken environment, the game started to take great leaps forward towards the game that we know today. This is a story of football in England and Wales between 1980 and 1985. By the start of the 1980s, a cold wind was blowing through football in England and Wales. The broader economic downturn, however, was only part of the reason for the problems that the game faced. Attendances were slumping against a backdrop of increasingly poorly maintained stadiums, hooliganism and the perception of drab, defensive football. English clubs may have been winning the European Cup, but five of the six wins recorded by them between 1977 and 1982 had come by a goal to nil. In the Football League, though, an increasing number of clubs were barely managing to stay afloat. When Bristol City were promoted into the First Division in 1976, it was the first time they played in the top flight for 65 years. They stayed there for four years, but relegation in 1980 hit the club hard. By August 1982 they were in the 4th division, following three successive relegations. The club had been losing money in the 1st division and relegation tipped them over the edge. By 1981 it was rumoured that the club was losing £5,000 a week and financial issues were not helped by bad decision making on the part of the directors of the club either. In October 1981, already heavily in debt and losing money, They authorised the £150,000 purchase of Mick Harford from Newcastle United. Money that the club simply didn't have. At the end of January 1982, matters came to a head. The club contacted eight players. Jeff Merrick, Jerry Sweeney, Dave Rogers, 
Peter Aitken, Chris Garland, Trevor Tainton, Jimmy Mann and Julian Marshall and told them that they would have to cancel their contracts or the club would die. In one sense, the players didn't have much choice. They were all Bristol City supporters. On the other though, these were different times and players didn't earn anything like they do nowadays although media coverage of the time was happy to portray them as rich men bleeding the club dry. The FA and the PFA were called in to mediate. There were rumours of threats being made against the families of the eight players. Bristol City were hopelessly insolvent, with a debt £850,000 greater than the valuation of the entire club. They owed £120,000 in transfer fees, £12,000 to the inland revenue, £80,000 to customs and excise, plus £500,000 to the players, including 300000 on the remainder of the contracts of the eight. The choice was a stark one, accept the terms or the club would be liquidated and they would receive nothing. Two of the eight never played in England again. One, Trevor Tainton, who played almost 500 games for the club, ended up bankrupt, but it did save Bristol City, which was folded and reformed as it slid into the 4th Division. Supporters have formed a cooperative to help raise money to pay the players' wages. We've raised about £4,500 from various events, from membership subscriptions, from donations, from a very successful family day on Easter Monday. And we're happy that we've started what I believe may be quite a long road but uh, we're on it and we're not going to fall off of it and uh, we're going to make some more money as time goes on I'm sure of that. Doesn't it indicate shortcomings on the part of the club that you have to do this you have to bail them out in a way? Well if there's shortcomings in the Swindon Town I think there's shortcomings with about 86 other league clubs aren't there? I think there's about six, aren't they, that are solvent at the moment. So, so you think and this could be a way that other, other supporters could help their own clubs? Oh, I believe so. I mean, if we want to see the game of football continue, and I, I certainly do, and I'm sure many millions of other people do, then uh, I believe that um, if you're in a position that you can give practical, constructive help to the people that you support, then you should get on and do it. And that's what I think the cooperative is trying to do. All the good work, though, could have been undermined by their fans. City's visit to Swindon earlier in the season brought serious crowd trouble, and now Swindon's youngsters were determined to make their presence felt. But the police were prepared and watched the visitors closely as they made their way into the ground. Bristol City weren't the only club to come close to the edge, and some only had themselves to blame. When Diego Maradona, the most famous footballer on the planet, signed for Barcelona in 1982, it set in motion a chain of events that might have killed a middling English football club. Maradona's signature meant no place in the Barca first team for a former European Footballer of the Year, Alan Simonson, and Simonson was subsequently put up for sale. He attracted some big-name clubs, but after revealing that he might prefer to play at a slightly less stressful level of the game, Other interested parties, which included Tottenham Hotspur and Real Madrid, were outflanked in the transfer market by 2nd Division Charlton Athletic, who offered £324,000 and a contract worth more than £80,000 a year to the player. Simonson went to the Valley. There was a media scrum, and crowds at Charlton doubled to around 10,000. 
but none of this was enough to make Simonson's transfer financially viable for the club. There was a brief period of optimism when he first arrived. He scored on his debut against Middlesbrough. But whilst his performances were excellent, he stayed with the club for just five months, scoring nine goals in 16 games. A team of mediocre players couldn't gel around him, and Simonson's contract included a release clause which was activated as it became increasingly clear that the club was having serious problems paying his wages. Charlton ended the 1982-83 season in 18th place in the second division and on the brink of bankruptcy. They were restructured during the 1983-84 season, but this separated the ownership of the club from ownership of the Valley, and Charlton were forced to leave to ground share at Selhurst Park in 1985. They wouldn't return until 1992. Other near misses would come throughout the beginning and middle of the decade, most notably at Bradford City in 1983, at Wolverhampton Wanderers in 1986, and at Middlesbrough in 1987. Increasingly, it became to be important for supporters to have rough understanding of company law and insolvency law. The diminutive Dane was bought, like another Scandinavian product, to refresh parts of the valley that others haven't reached. But here's the size of the task. On his 12th appearance in a Charlton shirt, barely 1,000 spectators on an East Terrace that once held 30,000. This was the 40s when Charlton were a giant of English football, reaching the cup final four times in five years, winning twice. Today, Charlton's ambition is more lowly, more desperate, to avoid relegation from Division 2. Simonson's touch and talent are immediately evident. But in such journeyman football company, there's always a danger that one star will shine alone. Only 4,500 spectators, the second lowest gate of the season, were attracted by the visit of Cambridge and the opportunity to see Simonson, who scored six goals in his first 11 games and who was voted the European Footballer of the Year in 1977 after Beckenbauer before Keegan. Moves towards growth in the commercial side of the game in this country had begun during the latter years of the previous decade. Shirt sponsorship had become increasingly commonplace in European leagues throughout the early to mid-1970s, but the FA were reluctant to join that particular bandwagon. In 1976, though, they got into an almighty row when Southern League Kettering Town's Derek Dugan requested permission for his club to take on sponsors, in the form of local company Kettering Tyres. When the FA turned down this request, Dugan changed the lettering to Kettering T and pleaded innocence, only for the FA to ban these shirts as well. They eventually relented in 1979, and Liverpool became the first Football League club to take on shirt sponsors, but there remained bumps in the roads. Tight regulations were in place over the size and placement of sponsors' logos, whilst they were banned from being used on televised matches. When Coventry City turned out in a kit that was almost entirely based on the logo of their sponsors, Talbot Cars, they were forced to design a second set of kits for televised matches only whilst when Watford turned up for an FA Cup match at Aston Villa in 1983 with the wrong shirts, 
they had to apply masking tape over the sponsor's logo. In the summer of 1983, the FA finally relented over the use of sponsored shirts for televised matches, although they stipulated that a smaller logo, 4 inches by 3 inches, would be the maximum size that they would allow. It was, of course, a compromise. These logos were difficult to make out by television cameras, but the introduction of shirt sponsorship for televised matches did push up the value of the contracts in the first place. They arrived in the summer of 1983, but there would be far bigger changes coming to the televised football landscape than this later in the year. The first moves towards a very different future for spectators in Britain came in Scotland in 1978, when the construction of a new stand at Aberdeen's Pitodry made it the first all-seater stadium in Britain. Clyde Banks' Kilbowie Park followed it a year later. In 1981, the idea made its move south. Jimmy Hill had returned to Coventry City as managing director of the club in 1975, and by the end of the decade, it was starting to tire of attacks on Highfield Road, which led to its facilities frequently being damaged. So in the summer of 1981, Coventry spent the not inconsiderable sum of £400,000 in converting the ground to become England's first all-seater stadium. It came with extra costs to the club. Every game was made all-ticket, with only a small number of advanced tickets being made available on the day for the then extremely high price of £5 each, whilst the ground's capacity was reduced from 38,500 to 20,616. The decision was not a popular one either. The terraces had built a mythology around them, and the high ticket prices were also criticised. Whilst the decision to make such changes without any consultation of supporters was widely criticised as high-handed. At Aberdeen, the conversion to seating had been more gradually introduced and had been better received as a result. And while the seats did seem to make dealing with incidences of hooliganism inside the stadium easier to deal with, they didn't stop them from breaking out in the first place. Two years later, a small section of the ground on the East Terrace was converted back to terracing, just as Jimmy Hill left the club for the final time. Something revered in Aberdeen is almost spat upon in Coventry, he said at the time. Fences went back up around the pitch in 1984, and in 1985 the entire East Terrace was converted back to terracing, increasing Highfield Road's capacity back to 28,000. By this time, though, the club's average attendance had fallen below 13,000. Have you booked your seat yet? Enjoy all the thrills of First Division football in comfort and safety from your very own seat at the new Coventry City All-Seater Stadium. Call the Sky Blue Link Line. Coventry City. Yes, we have. We've got plenty of tickets for this evening. Give me 40, please. The summer of 1981, though, would also see the introduction of another Hill-related innovation that would come to be used by the whole of the global game. In September 1980, the Stoke City manager Alan Durban had advised journalists critical of his tactics in a dreary 0-0 draw at Arsenal that if they wanted entertainment, they should go and watch clowns. Durban's comments were regarded as a symptom of a considerable problem 
within the game. Teams have become increasingly risk-averse, leading to more defensive football that was seen as having a negative effect on attendances. A month later, the Football League held an EGM at Solihull and Hill proposed increasing the number of points awarded for a win from two to three. Make a draw worth a third of the win, Hill argued, and clubs would be less inclined to play for it, leading to more attacking football. The idea was initially slow to take hold, but after FIFA adopted it for the 1994 World Cup finals, it quickly became adopted worldwide and remains the global norm to this day. The summer of 1981 would see one further innovation come to the Football League, albeit a considerably more controversial one. Queen's Park Rangers were one of the few clubs in the Football League to have substantially renovated their ground over the previous 10 to 15 years. Beginning in 1968, Loftus Road had been rebuilt bit by bit, to a point where it was the most modern football stadium in the country. So if an artificial surface was going to be trialled anywhere, it was always likely to be at this particular ground. Artificial playing surfaces had first been introduced at the brand new Houston Astrodome in 1966 after the owner, who also owned an artificial turf company, developed it after the stadium's roof prevented the grass from staying alive. A succession of very cold winters proved the tipping point for Rangers. For an outlay of £350,000, they installed an omniturf pitch, in which the turf was laid on a thin layer of sand and concrete. It would be easy to clear, was completely resistant to frost, and was hard-wearing enough to be able to be hired out on non-match days, bringing in extra revenue for the club. The Football League agreed it for a trial period of three years, but other clubs weren't happy. The bounce of the ball wasn't the same as it would be on grass, and despite the best efforts of manager Terry Venables to sell the idea to the public, the club's appearance in the 1982 FA Cup final and promotion to the First Division the following year were regarded as proof that it gave Rangers an unfair competitive advantage over other clubs. When they qualified for Europe in 1984, UEFA made them play their home matches away from home. They were eliminated at the second hurdle by Partizan Belgrade, despite winning the first leg played at Highbury by six goals to two. In total, three other clubs, Luton Town, Preston North End and Oldham Athletic, joined them in getting one installed, but QPR found that they couldn't hire the pitch out as much as they wanted to, and the criticism continued, with players picking up burns from sliding tackles, whilst adding more sand to the underlay to try and calm the bounce of the ball didn't seem to make that much difference. QPR ripped theirs up and went back to grass in 1988, and they were outlawed altogether in 1994. Rangers, who pioneered the plastic revolution in 1981, say whatever the claims, their pitch is regularly checked and easily fulfills the requirements laid down by the league. Ten more clubs, including Brentford, Southend and Wimbledon, want to join the plastic revolution, and Rangers believe if West Ham win the day, football will take a giant step backwards. The Football League Management Committee in 1987 really ought to accept that the, um, the world is round, uh, that we're, we're now in 1987, coming up to uh, an, another century, and that football ought to go forward. 
Um, I think they're completely wrong in specifying you mustn't do this um, and you mustn't do that. I think clubs should be allowed freedom of choice to decide their own future. With snow clearance on plastic as easy as this, Rangers will be playing friendlies tomorrow and Saturday. What we have to do, uh, not just for January the 29th, is try and prove to people that there is an advantage in a plastic pitch as opposed to uh, some of the propaganda that seems to be accepted that is, that is most unfair. The change that would come to have the greatest long-term ramifications for the future of football in this country, however, came in the summer of 1983. The Football League's previous dalliance with live televised football in 1960 had come to an end after just one match. But by the early 1980s, it was clear that highlights alone were no longer sustainable. They went into the summer not knowing whether common ground between the Football League and the broadcasters could be reached. But on the 15th of July 1983, an agreement was reached for £2.6 million a year to be paid over two years. The television companies had been granted a total of 10 live games, shared equally between the BBC, who scheduled theirs for 7.15 on Friday nights, and ITV, who took up Sunday afternoon slots. Both companies agreed not to show a highlights programme on a weekend of a live match, and not to visit any ground more than once a season. On top of this, ITV agreed to network their highlights, which returned to Sunday afternoons, with match of the day back on Saturday nights, and they cut down to two games a week, reducing the roles of regional broadcasters. Even the move away from Saturday nights suited ITV, who privately admitted to themselves that moving the big match there for alternate seasons over the last four years hadn't worked out as well for them as they might have hoped. Regional highlights wouldn't completely die out for some considerable time, but they wouldn't be the standard anymore. The yearly payments to the clubs remained the same, with compensation set aside for clubs whose gates were affected by live coverage, though how this could actually be proved would be something of a moot point when attendances were plummeting regardless of television coverage. Industrial action by technicians disrupted the start of the New Look highlights on ITV and the BBC, but on Sunday the 2nd of October 1983, this brave new world appeared for the first time, as Tottenham Hotspur played Nottingham Forest in the first live televised Football League match in more than 23 years. Spurs won the game by two goals to one, and the broadcasters declared themselves happy with a viewing audience of five million people. Welcome back to White Hart Lane, and we're all still buzzing here after a tremendous game of football. Spurs winning by two goals to one against Nottingham Forest. We've been joined here in the executive box by Douglas Alexu, the Spurs chairman. Your thoughts, really, on the day from a football point of view? Thrilled and delighted, Jim. A super occasion, a wonderful football match, and a superb crowd. The crowd behaviour, really, well, it was almost a throwback to uh, several years ago, wasn't it? Wonderful. It was entertaining for them and entertaining for us to listen to the crowd enjoying themselves. Everybody made a great play as to how big the gate was going to be here today. Just over 30,000. What's your view on that? I think in the circumstances, an exceptionally good gate. The best gate this weekend in the Football League. That can't be bad. 
And do you think you've really sort of set the style for the rest of live televised football? Do you think all clubs are going to have to do what you did here before the match at White Hart Lane? Well, we decided to make it an event, a day out for the family, and I think that's the way to do it. And as far as you're concerned, the football and television can live quite happily together this season? I think we've got on quite well today. Good. Mr Chairman, thanks very much for joining us. The England national team, meanwhile, had begun the new decade with a whimper at the 1980 European Championships. And despite the ongoing success of English club sides in Europe, they continued to stutter after it. Their qualifying group for the 1982 World Cup finals was a curiosity, as first seeds alongside Hungary, Romania, Switzerland and Norway, with the top two qualifying for a tournament that had been expanded from 16 to 24 teams. They started strongly enough, with a 4-0 win against Norway at Wembley, but their performance throughout the qualifying round were at best a curate's egg. They lost to Romania, Norway and most importantly of all, Switzerland. On the flip side to this though, they brushed Norway aside at home with relative ease and scored an excellent away win against Hungary, who won the group, by three goals to one. Against Norway, of course, it was the behaviour of the Norwegian commentator at the end of the match, which grabbed the headlines, despite England's 2-1 defeat. However, when Switzerland and Romania played out a goalless draw in their final match, a 1-0 win for England against Hungary, the winning goal scuffed over the line almost by accident from close range after 16 minutes by Paul Mariner, was enough to see them through. England, Scotland and Northern Ireland all qualified for these finals, but Wales failed to do so, and by the narrowest of margins. With two games left to play in their group, which also contained the USSR, Czechoslovakia, Iceland and Turkey, Wales seemed set to qualify. However, a terrible finish, consisting of a 2-2 home draw with Iceland and a 3-0 defeat away to the USSR, allowed Czechoslovakia to sneak past them on goal difference. England were, somewhat surprisingly, seeded for the finals and were drawn to play against France, Czechoslovakia and Kuwait, with all three of their group matches being played in Bilbao. With the Falklands War rumbling along in the background though, there were more concerns over a team that they hadn't been drawn to play than anyone they had. What might happen if England had to play Argentina? The government was concerned over the possibility that English hooliganism could flare up at the tournament, with Environment Minister Michael Heseltine saying in a confidential memo later released under the 30-year rule that My present view is that Her Majesty's Government should not yet suggest withdrawal to the football authorities, but that we should be ready to adopt that course at short notice if the situation worsens and in the light of public opinion. England's 1982 World Cup finals got off to the best possible start and an entirely predictable start at the same time. Riot police had to quell disturbances before, during and after the match. Whilst on the pitch, it took just 27 seconds for Brian Robson to score the fastest goal in the history of the tournament, a record that would continue to stay in place for the next 20 years. Two second-half goals from Robson and Paul Mariner sealed a 3-1 win. From there on, though, things started to slowly unwind. England won all three of their group matches, still the only time they've ever done this in a World Cup Finals, 
but their performances from here on deteriorated game by game. Two goals in five minutes were enough to see off Czechoslovakia in their second match, whilst a first-half goal from Trevor Francis edged them through as group winners. Winning the group, however, didn't seem to confer any advantages upon Ron Greenwood's team. They were now put into a second group of three, alongside West Germany and the hosts, Spain. They did reasonably well in their first match, drawing 0-0 with West Germany, all of which led to a straightforward shootout. Whoever got the best result against a weak Spanish team would get through to the semi-finals. If Spain could avoid defeat in their first match and then win against England, then they would go through. West Germany beat Spain by two goals to one, knocking the hosts out of the tournament. This left England needed a two-goal win against Spain. 1-0 would see West Germany through on goals scored. They drew 0-0 in a match now remembered for the introduction of Kevin Keegan and Trevor Brooking as substitutes, and for Keegan's subsequent missed header, which was really a symbolic point at which two goals became unattainable in this match. It was Spain's first clean sheet of a dismal tournament. As Trevor Brooking goes forward for England. Francis trying to make some space for him with his run off the ball. Robson. Mariner. And Robson, the flag has stayed down. Keegan! Well, the picture tells the story. Well, if we were going to win this World Cup, this was the one. Brian Robson did magnificently on this when he gets the ball. He just checks out beautifully, has a little look, and a beautiful clip for Kevin Keegan to knock it into an empty net. And Kevin knocked it wide. I wouldn't believe it. Ron Greenwood retired as soon as England were eliminated from the 1982 World Cup, and the transition to his successor couldn't have been much quicker. Bobby Robson was the obvious choice to replace him. He'd led Ipswich Town to the FA Cup in 1978 and the UEFA Cup in 1981 and had nearly been offered the position five years earlier when Greenwood was appointed. Robson was given the job just two days before the end of the tournament. His first decision was to drop Kevin Keegan from the squad and this was controversial not least for Keegan's hissy-fit star reaction to the decision. But England had to get straight on with the job of seeking to qualify for another European Championships, from a group which also contained Denmark, Greece, Hungary and Luxembourg. After having qualified for two successive tournaments, though, England reverted a little to their type from the 1970s. Few had foreseen just how strong the team that Denmark had built was, and with only the group winners qualifying for the finals in France, every point was critical. Ultimately, England paid the price for just one point from two matches against the Danes and a goalless home draw against Greece in March 1983. A home defeat against Denmark in September of that year effectively sealed their fate with a game left to play. Olsen again and Simonson and they claim Van Ball and a penalty has been given a 
penalty to Denmark for a handball there. We got it, but we didn't get it legally. That's where they claim the handball by Phil Neal there. The second strike. Well, Siemensen often takes the penalties for Denmark. And Siemensen is the man who has got the job now. Well, there's a great chance for Denmark. But he's still got to beat Peter Shilton. Siemensen, all the experience who Munchen Gladbach and Barcelona and Denmark and a responsibility now and it's 1-0 for Denmark There was almost certainly a sigh of relief on the other side of the English Channel at England not qualifying for the 1984 European Championships the hooliganism that had been growing in this country throughout the 1960s and 1970s was transplanted to the national team by the turn of the decade. Whilst far-right groups were believed to be successfully infiltrating supporters on match days at home. The problems continued throughout the first half of the decade. Barely a week seemed to go by without Jimmy Hill or Bob Wilson putting on their sombre faces in order to discuss an incident that had taken place somewhere in the country on Match of the Day. In May 1982, following a match between Arsenal and West Ham United, a supporter was killed in a riot between fans of the two teams. In May 1983, with supporters having spilled over onto the touchline during a match between Derby County and Fulham, a Fulham player was kicked by a home supporter. In a single month in 1983, 150 England fans were arrested in Luxembourg after a riot that caused £100,000 worth of damage, while Spurs were fined by UEFA after violence in Rotterdam left 30 fans dead with stab wounds and other injuries. It seemed to be everywhere, and few clubs, if any, seemed immune to it. Every club had its firm, its group of troublemakers who increasingly seemed more interested in fighting than football. Matters came to a head early in 1985, most noticeably when Luton Town played Millwall in an FA Cup quarter-final at Kenilworth Road. A disproportionately large away following, twice the size of Millwall's average home attendance of the time, travelled up from London to Bedfordshire, destroying the carriages of the football special trains that had transported them. Upon arrival for a match which had inexplicably not been made all ticket, the away supporters were then packed into terraces which were overflowing 45 minutes before kick-off, after a turnstile was broken down. Hundreds of Millwall fans scaled fences, and police were helpless as they rushed down the pitch towards Luton's supporters at the other end of the ground, hurling missiles. The rioters then ripped out seats and brandished them as weapons, and eventually the Millwall manager, George Graham, appeared on the pitch to appeal for calm, whilst police dogs cleared the pitch. After only 14 minutes had been played, the match was halted again, as visiting fans began throwing objects again. Eventually, the referee had little choice but to take both teams from the pitch for 25 minutes, while the police tried to contain the disorder. 
The match was completed with Luton winning 1-0, but missiles rained down onto the pitch throughout, and at the final whistle, the players fled for the tunnel. Hooligans tore down fences and again ripped out seats, hurling them at the police. Of the 81 people injured, 31 were policemen. One sergeant was struck on the head with a concrete block and stopped breathing, but another officer managed to resuscitate him. And highlights, such as they were, of the whole dismal evening were broadcast to an aghast audience that night on the BBC Sports Night show. And the scene still going on after the final whistle here. Supporters, or so they would call themselves, they're not, have gone across and started to throw seats out of the stand, adding to the scene of devastation and unrest which the police are trying to control. One has to say that uh, in a week when the Chelsea crowd trouble is going to be investigated by the Football Association, there's another major inquiry needed here. And something, as we've said before, sooner or later has got to be done to try to prevent people like this spoiling the football for others. It's getting uglier and uglier out there. There's now an invasion from behind the goal, which has added to it, and other people are coming onto the pitch. Bearing in mind what we saw before the match and what we're seeing now, they're outnumbering the police horribly. scenes at Kenilworth Road and this is what British football has got to contend with now it happened at Millwall back in 78, it happened at other places too and before that and nobody seems to be able to control it just look at this the condemnation which followed the match was swift, very loud and it rather felt almost entirely futile If there was one thing that hooligans seemed unlikely to respond to, it was going to be plummy-voiced outrage from rent-a-quote conservative ministers who'd shown little prior interest in the game other than using it as a vehicle to push their weirdly dated ideas about corporal punishment, national service and the like. The game's governing bodies, however, could hardly be considered blameless in allowing these circumstances to come about either, though. The policy, for more than a decade, had been one of containment rather than safety, and the Kenilworth Road riot had shown just how dangerous such a policy could be. It was little short of a miracle that no one was killed that night, and it had been no less of one that there hadn't been more deaths related to hooliganism or neglect in previous years. As spring turned to summer, though, that was all about to change. The sky was about to fall in on professional football in England. The Salvation Army band played And the children brought the lemonade And the morning lasted all day, all day And through an open window came Like Sinatra in a younger day Pushing the town away Hail my, 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 my 
podcast. Don't forget to rate and review on iTunes. Find us on Facebook by searching 200 net Or on Twitter at 2WOHP. Be good to each other. And robots. <laughs>